Ben is back and finally on English. My name is Christopher Vonheim and this week I've been in New York to record a very special podcast for you guys. Recognized as one of the most influential Bitcoin experts in the world, you can often see Pump on CNBC discussing cryptocurrencies, regulations, Libra and trade wars. Pump is not only a Bitcoin expert, he has a super interesting resume and journey so far. He served for the military in Iraq in his youth, he worked for the growth and product team in Facebook, and he started a very successful VC fund with his partners Jason and Mark. It was a delight to interview Pump and we hope for a part 2 in the future. We hope you enjoy our first podcast in English, we will produce more of them in the future. If you liked this episode, please subscribe or share it on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube or any other channels. If you want to connect with Pump, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram. And also make sure to subscribe to his awesome newsletter, Off the Chain. Now, let's get back to the interview with Pump. From fighting the wars to sitting here in New York, it has been quite a journey. Is, is, it, <laughs> is it possible to give a summary or is it going to be a long summary? No, it, look, I um, uh, grew up in the United States, uh, went to Bucknell University, played football there, uh, was in the military for a little while, did a deployment overseas, uh, came back, uh, built two small technology companies, uh, then went and ran a number of uh, product and growth teams at uh, Facebook um, and uh, started a uh, uh, micro VC fund uh, with my partner, Jason Williams. Why Facebook? What happened there? Why did you go? Uh I thought it was the best way to learn and move my career forward. Like it, it was definitely a learning decision more than anything else. Um, there, I was at a point in life where it was either I'm going to go to business school or I'm going to go and learn from people who have built these large, massive companies. Uh, I'm very glad that I chose to go to Facebook um, from a learning perspective. I got uh, indoctrinated to a culture and a thought process. Um, I saw, you know, one of the most successful companies uh, of our lifetime. What period um, is this? Work, what, what year? 2014. Is this where when Shamath was leading? Or who, who no, was like Chamath the big? Had, Chamath had let, uh, left at that time. Okay. Um, so the person I worked with most closely uh, in terms of like really was a great role model uh, was this guy Alex Schultz. Um, who I think his official title at least then was like head of internet marketing. Um, but but he was one of three people who lead the growth team at Facebook. Um, he's been there uh, probably over a decade now. Um, and I always uh, joke and say that Alex uh, was fantastic because he knew the perfect balance between uh, pushing us to um, kind of have ownership and, and, and really push these growth teams, but also when to say, hey, you know, here's some advice, here's some things that you should uh, you should look at. Um, and the great story about Alex is he actually put himself through college. Uh, he paid for it with a uh, website on paper airplanes. <laughs> so he was so good at you know SEO and traffic and monetizing it, et cetera. They literally paid for college with this website. And so you yeah. can go Google it and it's, uh, it's pretty cool to see. So it's an the, awesome experience. The guys who cracked SEO early, because I remember I went to Portugal. Mm -hmm. I learned the same people from McKinsey. This is how you learn SEO, SEM, but still, because when you're sitting there learning, it's like, yeah, but it's all about being early because if you have the time on your side, Google values that. So of to course. learn that early, it's like yeah. the best experience it, ever. It's like anything else, right? When there's new things, if you can understand it and you can be good at it early on, you get the benefit of uh, one, the knowledge, but two, the experience, right? That the time. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, SEO um, is a great example of that. Crypto is a great example of that. Um, and Stocks, investments, index fund. Everything. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so it's just uh, 
having really, really long time horizons in life is important. Uh, and the people who are able to be patient and disciplined, I think, uh, have an advantage over those who kind of, you know, run from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, uh, and constantly try to just get rich quick or, or do something that is, uh, is short-sighted. Yeah. But the career track in Facebook, because I imagine if you're in at Facebook, there has to be a lot of opportunities going forward. So what happens when you decide to think, Hmm, I think I want to start something myself. Is it like the inner entrepreneur speaking to you or? Yeah. So I th there's plenty of people who, um, leave Facebook and, uh, or any of the large tech companies, it's not just specific to Facebook, but they, uh, go to other companies, right? So whether they're mid-stage, early stage, yeah. late stage, whatever, um, there's plenty of people who uh, leave and say, I want to go to a different industry. Um, and there's obviously a lot of people who leave and say, I want to start my own company. Um, and so when people are leaving to start their own company, for the most part, uh, they're very well supported by their colleagues from Facebook, right? So people will yeah. angel invest, they'll um, provide uh, kind of insights some advice. Hey, you should go talk to my friend who might be able to help with this. Uh, oh, you're looking for an engineer. I know my buddy from this other company, right? Yeah. He's looking for a job all that kind of stuff. So I think that it goes back to this idea that Silicon Valley uh, will probably ever, uh, will never be replaced, right? Yeah. Meaning that like Silicon Valley will go away and something else will replace it. And it's because the lock-in of the people, the resources, the knowledge, uh, the experience, universities. Stanford. All of it. So, yeah. so it's just, it's a very unique place um, that's been uh, the beneficiary, again, going back to time, of now, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, right, yeah. uh, of this uh, kind of innovation uh, trend in that area. Yeah, I remember going to uh, Berkeley. I moved from Norway to take one semester mm -hmm. at Berkeley. And like the culture that hits you is like, wow. Because when you live in Norway, right, you're not allowed to say, I'm going to build the next Facebook. I mean, <laughs> it's not something you even think about. Yep. But after one week, it's like, okay, is this how it is? That should be the ambition. It's crazy, like, of course, right? it, it like gives you a lot of fuel to go forward. But still, I'm just thinking, you were a quick period at Snapchat. Is mm -hmm. that something you want to talk about? What happened? Or is it like sort of... Yeah, I mean, look, everything is public, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I basically left Facebook, was uh, hired as the head of growth at Snapchat for a short period of time. Um, you know, not not a, uh, a great experience. And uh, I moved on to go and um, start a, a micro VC fund. Yeah. Um, did that with my partner, Jason. Um, and we basically started to uh, invest in early stage companies, um, invested in over 60 of them in a very short period of time. And uh, it's gone very well. So that kind of led us into uh, investing full time uh, like we're doing today. Can you tell the story about the data center to Jason, how we use yeah. some tires? He, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a great story and why it's, it matters, the price and like free energy. and. Yeah. So uh, what you're talking about is, um, you know, Jason... Uh, has been very heavily involved in a company called uh, PRTI. Um, and uh, uh, both of us have uh, made, you know, personal investments uh, over time. And, and again, Jason's uh, much more hands-on, um, you know, helping the company to, uh, to scale. And what that business does is um, it has something called a thermal demanufacturing process, which is a, a really big word, but, but in the simplest terms, it gets paid to take tires in, uh, on the front end of the business as like a waste management, right? So think of just like a trash business almost. Um, you take the tires in and they get paid to do that. Uh, and they're being paid to dispose of the tire, right? 
What they do in the disposal process is they basically take the tire, they put it into a reactor, um, and there's a proprietary process that they put the tire through in that reactor that breaks the tire down into the base uh, resources, right? So it breaks it down into um, oil, steel, carbon, and syngas are the four outcomes um, of that process. They sell the oil and the steel as a commodity. Um, so just like you would sell oil or steel traditionally. And then they take the carbon and the syngas and they essentially turn it into power. Right, so there's a generator um, and, and uh, a whole bunch of stuff involved in that process, um, and a turbine, etc. And so when it goes through that process, uh, you have a power source. And originally, the company was going to just sell the power into uh, the grid, right? So just yeah. be a, a power generator, sense. sell yeah. it into it, you know, three and a half cents, whatever the the amount of money is. Um, as we had started to get excited about cryptocurrencies, um, the mining business, uh, we had already had some uh, miners that were running in another facility. Uh, we said, why would we sell the power into the grid if this power is super valuable and we could just mine with that power? There's an advantage because the business was uh, on a unit economic basis uh, break even because we get paid to take the tires and then we sell the oil and the steel. So the power, it's not free in the sense yeah. of, um, you know, there's no cost associated, yeah. but from an OPEX standpoint, it was quote unquote free. Yeah. Right. And so we said, look, let's just build miners right here. And so we started building mines, uh, right there on site to use this power and monetize it ourselves rather than sell it to the grid. The reason obviously in the mining business, why it's so important is, uh, the cost of power is the largest input. Right. So when you have that input cost, what happens is if you can drive it closer and closer to zero, you actually become more profitable on the mining side. Exactly. So it was this huge advantage that we had in mining. Um, and that actually pushed us really far down the, the rabbit hole in crypto uh, and Bitcoin, because when you start mining, then you need to figure out digital wallets, you need to figure out exchanges, you need to figure out yeah. you know reporting, all this stuff. And it was so early that like we would just like email people and literally like the CEO would respond, <laughs> right? And be like, hey, we're looking at like digital wallets and like, like wait, the CEO's responding? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so we decided, hey, we should probably go invest in some of these companies uh, on top of just be uh, users of their uh, products. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I think that's a very important point. And I think it's an important lesson to every industry because I had the same experience, like uh, reading Bitcoin, the white paper, seeing some documentaries on Netflix, of course, it gives you insights. But at the moment, you're actually trying to build a mining center. You have to go very deep down on an infrastructure level and mm -hmm. understand the pieces. Because Absolutely. it's a lot of pieces, right? It's like politics. I mean, Bitcoin is it's not a, it's almost like an invention. It's not a product. It's not a service. For sure. It's, it's like a, a... It's a core protocol. Yeah, exactly. So, but... Um, can you tell me about the first time you remember reading about Bitcoin or the first time you went into the rapid hole? Is there some, some stories here, some people you met? The, the, you know, I've told a story a bunch of times, but the first time I ever heard about Bitcoin was uh, 2014 at Facebook. Uh, we had hired David Marcus from uh, PayPal. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and, uh, and he sat in a part of the building uh, close by. And he had mentioned it a couple of times, right? And was talking about it uh, actually quite a bit. Uh, and I turned to one of the engineers and I just said, you know, is this real? Um, like, what is this thing? And uh, the engineer kind of blew it off. Like, no, it's, you know, it's fake, right? It's, it's all nonsense. Uh, and so I didn't do anything. Didn't even Google oh, it. Really? Didn't do anything. Um, and then again, in 2016, uh, I started to see more and more founders talking about uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto, et cetera. Um, and that's when I really started to like kind of do work was end of 16 into, uh, 2017. What is the reason that if you take, for instance, PayPal mafia, you have Max, you have Pierre Thiel, you have Elon Musk, they, 
are also, of course, super smart, but mm -hmm. it seems like they're a bit splitted 50-50 in terms of how important they believe Bitcoin is, mm -hmm. which means it has to be complicated because if so many smart people disagree on this, it's kind of tricky to see what's the value here. Yeah, I don't know if they disagree as much as some of them are very obviously interested in it and okay. some of them yeah. have their plate full with other things. So like take Elon Musk, right? Like he's come out uh, on a podcast with uh, Kathy Wood and, and the uh, ARK Invest folks. And he basically said, look, paper money is going to be a thing of the past, right? Like paper money is going to go away. That sounds like a pretty pro Bitcoin and crypto statement yeah. to me. Um, but then when he's asked, you know, do you own Bitcoin? Do you whatever? He's like, ah, somebody sent me one one time, like, you know, whatever. I think he kind of looks at it and he's like, I'm literally launching rockets and landing them on autonomous drones in the ocean, right? And then I've got the best electric car in the world and I'm trying to scale, you know, the first American, you know, car company in, in a century, basically. And trying to be uh, in a relationship sometimes. Yeah, and, and just like trying to live his life and just do all this crazy stuff, right? And then he's got, oh, and by the way, I'm trying to put chips in people's brains and like all this shit going on, right? A lot of kids as well. So, and, I mean, it's... Yeah, and so just like... Bitcoin's not important to him, yeah, exactly. right? He, he's like kind of like doing other things that he thinks are more important. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if he's like negative towards it, right? It, to me, it seems like he's like, yeah, of course that's going to happen. So like, I don't need to work on it because somebody else is going to do it, yeah. right? Whereas like no one was exactly. going to do the rockets, right? No yeah. one was going to do the electric cars. So yeah. he went and did the hard stuff. Exactly. Um, and then uh, if you look at, you know, Peter Thiel, for example, like he's very pro Bitcoin. He's loaded right? in Bitcoin, right? But he bought yeah, it. Bought at a high lot. price, right? I think he's got a lot. Yeah, so. but he bought high price. The big, the, the fund, right? I remember. I, I, my guess is yeah. that there hasn't been just one purchase, right? Of course, I, I don't know. Not. I don't. Yeah. I have no information other than what yeah. uh, you could read online. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be too worried about the prices <laughs> that uh, the billionaires are buying Bitcoin at, <laughs> especially not now since it's like go some months back. It was a very good opportunity to buy last Absolutely. year. So yeah. Uh, let's go a bit forward. Um, talk a bit about your day job today, how it's evolved. You're on TV every day. You like, <laughs> yeah, the Bitcoin influencer. Do you like that term or does it make you feel a bit, uh, awkward? I, to, to be honest, the way that I think about, um, you know, what my job is, my job is to, um, manage people's capital and deploy it into great companies, uh, that I believe are going to be very important in the future. Right. And so when I think about that, um, there's a couple of components to it. The first is there are uh, very sophisticated, intelligent investors who uh, are going to decide whether they are going to trust me and my partners with their capital. And that's a big responsibility, right? The second thing is uh, those investors are not giving the money for me to go build a company, right? Or for one of my partners to go build a company. What they're doing is they're trusting our judgment to then go find partners, which are the founders, to build companies, right? So what we have to do is we have to serve two customers. We have to serve our investors and we have to serve our founders, right? And so it's kind of this balancing act between um, finding the, the common ground of what's best for both of them. Um, and so as part of that, uh, I think it's really important that people know what we believe, right? I, I think that, um, it, it's one of these things where, uh, why you do something, you know, what's the driving force behind it, how you think about what you're doing, all that stuff's really, really important. And so a, a very long time ago, I just said to myself, uh, I believe that kind of open sourcing your thoughts, right? Sharing, oversharing, giving as much information out there as possible, yeah. uh, is, is a better 
way to operate than to do the opposite and not share anything. And the reason was one, if you're correct, right, people kind of see you as you evolve your thought process and, and um, they, they understand and more context around why you believe the things you believe. And then if you're wrong, you're using the, the power of the crowd to correct you, right? So if I, I mean, look, if I tweet something and it's wrong, I know immediately that it's wrong, <laughs> right? Because I got all these people who respond and tell me that yeah. it's wrong. So I think that um, this idea of being comfortable with failure in public uh, was really empowering to me. And it allowed me to kind of start just writing all the time, tweeting, right? The podcast, all the yeah. stuff. Now, when it comes to the television stuff, um, we forget that crypto Twitter is not that big. Yeah. Right. We forget that like the newsletters, the podcast, it's all insular, yeah. right? It's all the people in yeah. crypto are listening to this stuff. They're reading this stuff. They're, they're watching it. We have to break out into the mainstream. Yeah. Right. And so I've been very fortunate in that um, through a whole combination of, um, you know, relationships and, yeah. and yeah. Uh, some serendipity to be able to go on to television and talk about what all of us in crypto already know. Right. Yeah. Like if you talk about Bitcoin in the crypto community, we all talk about Bitcoin the exact same way. We're all believers and, and, and we are uh, really enthusiastic. Yeah. When you take that and you do the exact same thing, but rather yeah. than talk to other people in Bitcoin and crypto and you do it to a mainstream national audience, yeah. right? To them, it's like groundbreaking. They're like, whoa, <laughs> what are those people talking about, right? But it's trying to take the same message and just bring it to a new audience, which yeah. I think is really, really important because what it does is it slowly brings more yeah. people into Bitcoin and crypto. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight, but yeah. every single time that myself or anyone else in the community goes on television, I think it's really, really important. I don't know if you agree with this, but it's like, I think it's very important to simplify because when people talk to me about Bitcoin, I have a very easy tendency to like, okay, let's show my knowledge. Like it's decentralized, blah, 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 blah. But basically, if I ask them, can you explain me how a credit card works? It's very hard to explain. It's mm -hmm. a deep technology process behind it. There's a lot of people involved. So do you think it's necessary for people to really know the process about Bitcoin? Or is it just the fact that it works It's a store of value? It's like, I mean, to me, that feels like that's the... Most important thing. There are plenty of people who get upset when myself or others describe uh, Bitcoin or anything with the industry really in very simplistic terms, right? They say, oh, that, that's not exactly true, right? Yeah. Or, oh, that, um, that, that you took the nuances out, right? Uh, and what they have to realize is um, if I asked you what is HTTP, which is a protocol, yeah. right? Uh -huh. And you describe to me the technical aspects, I would be like, whoa, that's way over my head. Doesn't sound important, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. right? <laughs> if you instead said it's an open protocol that you could use to connect to information company, you know, servers, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Then all of a sudden, that actually sounds pretty important, yeah. right? And so I think that it's um, the difference between a technical description and like more of a consumer description Um there's a time and a place for both, yeah. but it's understanding where's the time and the place, right? Yeah. For each description. Um, and so I, I make no you know hidden uh, qualms about it. I am not technical in the sense of going to go out and describe Bitcoin in highly technical terms. Uh, I don't think that that serves the yeah. Bitcoin and crypto community the best. Yeah. There's people yeah. who are way better at that yep. than me. Yep. It doesn't serve my business well. Um, and ultimately, I don't think it serves the audience's no. benefit either, right? Yeah. Because there's people who are better at it than me to do that. And you're also scaring people away to be to be way too technical. But yeah, imagine you if you went on you know, television and you recited the white paper. Exactly. 
look, it's actually very well written, yeah, right? Yeah. It's actually pretty simplistic, <laughs> yeah. but it's still a, you know, you could read it 10 times mm-hmm. and each time you're like, wow, this is a pretty powerful document, right? <laughs> exactly. And so you've got to find ways to um, use analogies, yeah. right? Or, or kind of things that they already understand um, to, to get across these highly uh, complex concepts. Um, and I think that what you're seeing is the people who are able to do that well uh, yeah. are, are getting the opportunities to do that in front of larger and larger audiences. Do you have any favorites? I think accounting system for machines is a good one. Do you have any other you like to you know, some tweets that explains Bitcoin simply and understandably? So the way that I describe Bitcoin um, and, and then a blockchain, two separate things. Yeah, yeah. One with Bitcoin, I literally just say uh, you trust an algorithm with everything else in your life. Right. For the most part, at some point, you're going to trust an algorithm with your money. Yeah. Right, like, and you by trust the way, the email, right? You trust the email to you, go. Well, and I use Google Maps, yeah. right? You trust it to tell you where you're going. Yeah. Like, you physically <laughs> move your body depending on this algorithm. <laughs> what information you put in, so the books it recommends you, the uh, music it recommends you, all the stuff you listen to an algorithm. Yeah. When you Google things, the algorithm tells you the answer. I mean, like, it's pretty crazy how much algorithms drive our, yeah. um, you know, our lives. At some point, you're going to trust an algorithm to. Just secure your money. Yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. And so, so Bitcoin's a great way to do that. Um, when it comes from a uh, to a blockchain, what I basically describe is triple entry accounting. Yeah. We have two two entry accounting, dual entry accounting. Today, there's been an invention of a piece of technology that now has created triple entry accounting. Triple entry accounting is really important because you no longer have to trust these centralized authorities. You can trust this triple entry accounting system. Most people are like, oh, triple entry accounting sounds pretty interesting, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. don't know what I would use it for, but like, sounds interesting. And so, I think it's again just what's the most basic concept? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I recently met with, uh, um, with, with a guy who's now, uh, I would consider a friend, um, this guy, a Bitcoin rabbi, right? So he's a Hasidic Jew, uh, who wrote a book, um, but it's a children's book and it describes the very complex topics around Bitcoin awesome. and blockchain awesome. for, you know, essentially like a five-year-old, right? It's kind of a story. It's perfect. Meet this person. His name is Satoshi. Nobody really knows anything about Satoshi, right? Blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> But as I was reading through this book, it hit me like this gentleman understands Bitcoin and blockchain technology better than most because he's had to distill it down to the most simple terminology so that a five-year-old could understand it. It's not a typical interview question at Google. Can you explain internet to a five-year-old? Because it shows you how well you understand the concept because if you break it down, so it's a good good way to doing that. Absolutely. And so when you go on television or you do podcasts or anything with a public audience, the way I look at it is you're basically talking to five-year-olds, yeah. right? Not, not because the people on the other end aren't intelligent yeah. or sophisticated. It's that you have to relay a very complex topic yeah. in the you know kind of most simple terms possible. It's also about being respectful to people because people don't have the time like us to read for many, many hours. Maybe of they course. have children. Maybe they have things to do, a life. So, I mean, it's also about respect well, in my think opinion. Think about it. You're, if... Let's say that, uh, and I'm not saying this, but but some people would say, uh, take 1% of your net worth, right? And put it into Bitcoin, right? So just- Some math philosophy, right? Hedging for the- global. Yeah, so just 1%. Well, that means that the person should spend 99% of their time focused on other things than Bitcoin. Exactly. <laughs> right? It's only 1%. So like if, if their portfolio is a proxy for how they spend their time in terms of thinking on exactly. the finance side, yeah. this is like the smallest thing, right? Yeah. So they need to be very efficient in the use of their time and understanding it because yeah. it's only 1% of their time. Can we go into the rabbit hole? Imagine that we're sitting in to, into the government in Norway who just recently uh, banned the, the tax that makes it possible to mine and stuff. And because there's some misconceptions out there. Uh-huh. The, so I'll, I'll go through some of the most typical. This is like the, um, the title in the Norwegian financial papers, basically, yep. right? So this is the narrative. Bitcoin 
uh, only used by criminal. How do you answer that? Look, every currency in the world is used by criminals, right? And um, if you look at something like money laundering, those uh, nefarious actors do not want their transactions to be transparent, yeah. right? They want to be able to hide the transactions. A blockchain is a really bad place to try to hide transactions. So, exactly. uh, you know, look, I, it's not lost on me that people are going to use um, Bitcoin, the US dollar, the yen, or any yep. other currency in the world to money launder or for criminal activity. It just happens to be that structurally, I think that um, a digital currency actually has a higher probability of uh, deterring those yeah. criminal activities than encouraging them. But let's also add that criminals are very good to finding new technology. So it's not like, of course, when Bitcoin was a new technology, of course, criminals would be attracted to it because it's a new playing ground for them. So maybe also they have a point. In the start, criminals are very good to finding opportunities to do bad things. And whatever it is, it's of course, look, every new technology starts on the fringes of society, right? The internet started with criminals, you know, porn, yeah. gambling, all this stuff. And it's because they're constantly having to push the pace of innovation and find new technologies to kind of stay ahead of the law. Yeah, so right? not get in jail, basically. Exactly. And so um, it, it, it is, uh, the technology shouldn't get um, kind of attached yeah. to the criminal activity, um, actually from an investor standpoint, there's a lot of investors who say, well, what are the criminals using? What are the, you know, kind of more vice type industries using? Because that technology will eventually permeate into um, and become pervasive in the rest of society. Um, and so I think we just, you know, again, it's just being rational about uh, how much criminal activity is actually happening. Um, I don't think that it's nearly as much as people think it is. Uh, exactly. Let's go to the one I find a bit tricky, not sustainable, the electricity argument. Yep. A more sophisticated argument. Yeah. So, so look, uh, there's no secret that Bitcoin uh, mining is a large consumer of energy. Uh, one, I think that that is actually a positive thing, right? That's where the security comes from. Of course. So I yeah. explained to people, uh, it's the most secure computing network in the world, right? Yeah. It should consume a lot of energy. That's what makes it so secure. Yeah. So that, that's one piece of it. The second piece is uh, because the cost is the largest input, like we talked about earlier in that yeah. business, people are constantly seeking out lower cost energy. Well, where's the lower lowest cost energy? In renewables. And so I actually would make the argument that I think that um, Bitcoin mining and other types of mining uh, on the proof of work side are driving the adoption of and pushing the pace of innovation in renewable energy because people have to go seek out exactly. the lowest cost power and they're putting yeah. big dollars behind developing it. Yeah. But I, I don't think we can forget that we have an environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. So, of course, like it, it, I, I totally agree with that argument, but imagine if you meet a people who are trying to save the world with energy because we need a lot more energy. Of course, that person will have a problem with that. Maybe yeah, it doesn't but, understand Bitcoin. Maybe well, it doesn't understand. So look, move to uh, central Washington, the state of Washington in the United States. In central Washington, there was a massive surplus of hydropower, right? So what did happen? Bitcoin miners moved in and said, we'll take some of that off your hands. because it's, And the reason why it's cheap is because there's a surplus. Yeah. So that energy was already not being used, yeah. right? If you look in Iceland, for example, the geothermal energy, right? Yeah. If you look at other parts of the world, there, there's other types of renewable energy. And right? in Norway, there are great resources, huge resources. Of course. So. And so people are going to either have it sit there as a surplus, 
it'll expire, right? Because storing energy is really, really difficult. So that's yeah. another issue. Um, and if we can monetize it in a way that is uh, is not um, killing the environment, right? It's not like yeah. mining is, um, you know, throwing up a bunch of black smoke in factories, yeah. right? It, it's a very different type of consumption of and, energy and, that's much cleaner. And I also think my dream scenario, if I manage to build my data center in Northern Norway, would be that we use the heat and provide the heat to houses because the houses needs to be warm during winter time. So you store that heat, put it down and takes it to the house. That I would mean, be a great be scenario. Right? It would be amazing. Absolutely. I think, I think there's people who have built kind of very small, um, you know, like they've hacked together systems like that where yeah. they mine in their shed and they've used it to heat their home, that type of stuff. Uh, but if you could do it on a large scale, it'd be very, very valuable. So on the last one can't do transaction in big scale and I, I think this is a very huge question because many have the feeling that bitcoin the white paper is really bitcoin cash or bitcoin sv so i mean this is a large question but you view it as a gold digital gold right so you don't want to buy your coffee with bitcoin that's not it's not the purpose for bitcoin so is that argument how do we view that argument that bitcoin is not a transaction the transaction is in fintech and alipay and Maybe Facebook Pe now, so it's a big question. But. People have to re remember that the fiat system was built the exact same way. We're seeing history, maybe not repeat, but rhyme for sure. Yeah. Right? So we had gold. Gold was a currency. Everyone used it. <laughs> it we realized, ah, it's not really that great for transactions. So we created paper claims to the gold, right? Yeah. Which yeah. ended up becoming dollars. Yeah. Those dollars, eventually, then we built... Uh, electronic money on top of it, credit, you know, all these things got built on top of gold as a non-scalable use for transactions yeah. uh, as a store of value medium of exchange. And then we kind of built layer two, layer three, layer four on top of it. The same thing's happening with Bitcoin, right? Yeah. It is uh, the Bitcoin that we talk about today is acting very similar to gold. It's a store yeah. of value, right? You can use it for medium of exchange. Yep. It's just not ideal, yep. right? Yes. And so what right. we're, yeah. But what we're seeing is the early stages of the infrastructure being built for layer two, layer three, layer four, yeah, exactly. where it will become highly, highly scalable in yeah. the future. And when that happens, I think people are going to look back and be like, oh, wow, that was really, really obvious yeah. that you had to have the core foundation layer before you could build those other layers yeah. on top. Could you say something thoughtful about Facebook's uh, Calibra? I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I, I there's no, some I, other I have no thoughtful thoughts ever. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, is so, it, but it's that the killer app that Rubina has been waiting for. The email to the internet is Facebook, uh, the killer app for crypto. Bitcoin is the killer app, yeah. and it's it's already bigger than Venmo, Apple Pay, right? You know, uh, PayPal, etc. So it's available in more countries. It's got more on-chain transaction volume than they did annually, right? All this stuff. The thing that I think uh, a bunch of other people are looking for, like those guys, is they want to see the Facebook of the internet, right? right? They want to see the Google of the internet. What they have to realize is um, that the Facebook of the internet, it could very easily be the Binance's, the Coinbase's, the yep. Gemini's, the Kraken's, the circles of the world, right? Like yep. that is infrastructure around this application, yep. right? Yep. On top of that, the miners, and there's people who've built massive mining businesses, right? Yeah. Those are more applications of the technology. People who are running this stuff, they're, they're, it's like the developer tools, like all this yeah. stuff, right? So I think that the framework people are applying where they're saying like, where's the decentralized application that's, you know, the future, like this technology, that doesn't matter until we get that. I just tend to think that, yeah, yes, like there will probably be uh, decentralized applications in the future. Yeah. 
we don't get to have those until we get the infrastructure and the foundational protocols okay. correct. It's also about looking behind the scenes. You see Amazon having uh, doing some stuff on Ethereum. You see Microsoft. You see so much things going on in the R&D department. And that's basically where you should be viewing if you want to try to forecast the future, right? But also, in my opinion, if, if I could like bet on one company to be huge, I would bet on Coinbase. Mm-hmm. In my mind, there's no reason why Coinbase can't be the next Google. In like 5, 10, 15 years. Look, there's a bunch of companies yeah. that are coming out of that space, whether it's Kraken, Gemini, uh, Coinbase, yeah. Circle, um, you know, all, all of them, right? Even Binance, yeah. right? It yeah. is, they're all just building a very, very different model. Yeah. And I think that there's going to be companies that uh, end up being worth hundreds of billions, if not over a trillion dollars in this yeah. industry. And the key is to go and try to find them. Can you say something about, uh, imagine if someone in Norway that has to work with the regulations and stuff, do you have anything you can say to why we should open up to the mining activity? Is it possible to like give an argument for why it's a bad idea to scare these actors away? Yeah, look, I, I, am, uh, I am on record as saying uh, the countries that use regulation to incentivize entrepreneurs, innovation, economic activity are going to drastically benefit more than the countries that use regulation to repel or disincentivize people from doing that. In this industry, there's a couple of ways that you can benefit from it if you are a nation state. One is you can actually just expose yourself to Bitcoin. So you just buy Bitcoin, put it on your balance sheet. That's pretty good. It's a scarce asset, probably going to be valuable in the future. Two is you can incentivize private companies to move in, or you can incentivize the building of infrastructure. The biggest argument, I think, for a nation state to embrace something like mining is you are simply encouraging your country to have more computing power underneath or within its borders. Some of that computing power can only be used for the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Like the uh, the ant miners, et cetera. Yeah. There's other computers like the GPUs, et cetera, that can be used not only for just mining cryptocurrencies, but certain pieces of technology can actually be used for things like autonomous driving, 3D rendering, uh, DNA sequencing, Neuralink or Elon Musk Neuralink probably in the future. Who knows? It's just like, computing power, yeah, right? So. so there's GPU, CPU, TPU, right? There's all these yeah. different um, processing units, right, that uh, have been uh, created and different types of uh you know, uh, products or companies that need computing power need the different types or variations. And so having a lot of computing power inside your borders is probably going to prove to be a good decision in the future. Which means that Norway, which has a huge amount of sustainable green energy, that's like having steel. And like you you said that analogy. It should have a huge advantage, right? You know, people always say data is the new oil. Well, then that makes the computing power the steel. Yeah, right? Exactly. And uh, and the country that is the biggest steel producer did all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Can we talk a bit about uh, the price? Or let's start with a normal person, let's say between 20, 40 years old, not tech savvy, but likes innovation, likes to save money. Mm-hmm. How much Bitcoin should that person have? Or is it like 1% each, is, is yeah, fair? Yeah, each person is different, right? Yeah. It's all about the risk profile, yep. uh, your other responsibilities. So it, it's too hard to kind yep. of make a blanket statement as yep. to one, one certain percentage. Uh, with that said, though, the way that I describe it to folks is um, it is a non-correlated uh, asymmetric asset, meaning it does not move in lockstep with other assets, either up or down, right? Yeah. So it has, it's the value drivers are different. A stock, for example, is driven by revenue, profits, GDP, interest rates, et cetera. 
this asset of Bitcoin is not driven by those same things. What are it driven by? Right. Well, it's driven by the fundamentals. It's a, it's yeah. a network, right? And so the advantage I had early in looking at this stuff is uh, having worked at Facebook, I understand how networks and technology products grow, right? So I always use the example of uh, if you have a mobile app and uh, let's say you run a marketing campaign and you sign up 100 new people and then there's... 30% of them, so 30 people, try out the product. They don't like it right after a week or two, and they leave, and they don't use it anymore. So they kind of churn out. Yeah. Well, you had a net gain of 70 people. Then there's another influx of users. Then there's some of the percentage of those churn out, right? Then you have another uh, kind of um, you know acquisition of users. Some of those churn out. But each time, you're having a net new gain of users, right? And so over time, the retention ends up being really, really important. Yeah. And so the network effect locks people in and retains them. Yeah. Bitcoin is experiencing that. That's what these kind of bull and bust cycles yeah. look like, right? Or, or they're acting like is the same exact way that technology products grow. But in my mind, the craziest thing with Bitcoin, and I, I'm guilty of this. People say to me, I have a fair amount of Bitcoin, at least in my like mm -hmm. net worth, right? And, and I'm saying to them, I'll never sell. I'll, I want to die with the Bitcoin. And I, I don't know if you're the same, but imagine if you have a system where the people who are in it don't want to sell. And if you add more people into the system, what do you think will happen with the price? Supply and demand economics are a beautiful thing. And I literally think it's such a simple concept that people <laughs> It's too are, simple, right? They're confused. Yeah. They're like, there's no way that this is possible. What do you yeah. mean? How, how does this work? Blah, blah, blah. But look, look at the media like, oh, this is a trade war. That's why the Bitcoin go. Oh, of course. I, I'm not saying it's not an important factor. Of course, the more unstable world you have, the more you tend to go to the scarce asset. But still, to my mind, it's a bit too simple to just find something bad going on in the world and say, that's the reason why Bitcoin goes up. Completely agree. Yeah. Okay, let's, I want to try some segments here. Okay. This one is called overrated or underrated. So I explain a concept and you say, if you think personally it's overrated okay. or underrated. So aliens, overrated or underrated? Underrated, underrated for sure. People I think are like, oh, that's crazy to think about aliens. Um, it's not. I, I tend to think that... Uh, we probably know more about aliens than we're being told, right? Like the human race knows more about aliens. And you than guys know person. more about it, right? Huh? The U.S. knows more about it. Probably. The U.S. probably knows a lot, right? Um, and, and so with that said, um, I could easily see uh, the narrative changing very quickly if all of a sudden people are like, whoa, like somebody had contact with an alien. All of a sudden it would become like the most important thing, right? There's a species other than humans who may come here. Yeah. We probably know Pretty more, scary, huh? We, we probably know more about aliens than the Mariana Trench, where we haven't been. It's the deepest place. Yep. In, yeah, so I, I completely agree. Higher education? Um, I think that higher education is uh, overrated and underrated. Yep. Overrated from a, you have to have this piece of paper to have the qualifications to get a job. I think that's really stupid. Expensive insurance, right? Yeah, it's it's just exp it's expensive. Uh, it might not even be insurance in some <laughs> cases, right? And uh, and I don't think that people actually learn that much, right? Yeah. I think it's highly underrated to for all of the social skills, the network you build. So like all the soft parts uh, that or the benefits of maybe uh, travel across the world to text. I mean, it's all great. kinds of things, right? You went you came to the yep. U.S. for a semester, right? Like yeah. all stuff. Yeah. So I think that there's a bunch of soft benefits that go uh, unmentioned because people simply look at what's the information you retained, what's the piece of paper you get at the end, and how much did it yep. cost. Yeah. Um, and so overrated in that sense, underrated with all the other stuff. Follow your passion. Uh, follow your passion. I think is um, a underrated idea 
mainly because I think that when people say follow your passion, they think about uh, what am I passionate about? Okay, I should do this for a job. I look at it as out of all of the jobs that either you're going to go work for somebody else or that um, you're going to create, right? So you're going to start a company or, or whatever. Uh, I'd say, look at all the options and then pick the one you're most passionate about, yeah. right? So if you just said, you know, if I said to you, what are you passionate about? And you said, uh, I really like to paint, right? And then you said, oh, I'm going to go start a business around painting. Eh, that's a little hard to do. Maybe right? a graphic designer try to steer that passion into something. Well, if I said to you, Hey, there's four job opportunities that you have, right? One is as an engineer, one's as an accountant, yeah. one's as a lawyer, and one's as a graphic designer. Yeah. Then you say the one I'm most passionate about is graphic design. It's not exactly being an artist. I like yeah. to paint, but it's close enough where I get to uh, get really close to being an artist, yeah. right? But but I get yeah. to have a job that uh, I can live on as well. Totally agree. Living in the U.S. to make it uh, from I, a Norwegian I, standpoint, or. Yeah, so so I think that there's two components here. One is uh, you can definitely do anything anywhere, right? Meaning that um, there are uh, people, there's knowledge on the internet, there's access to money, you know, all that kind of Freelancers. stuff. Freelancers. Yeah, it exists anywhere in the world. I do think that there's a significant advantage to being in major metros, um, whether that is uh, San Francisco, New York, even London, um, Singapore, et cetera, yeah. right? So it's not just the US, but just major metros in general, LA, right? I think it depends what you mean by making it because if you're going to scale something huge, I think you need you to. You got to be in Silicon Valley. I, yeah, I, truly believe, I truly believe that there's, if you put on a ranking of, if you want to scale a technology company. Yeah, important. Yeah. Silicon Valley is number one, number two, number three, number four, and number five on the list. And then there's not anything else on the list. Maybe until, China, but then you have to kind of change your personality and I, go I, into a system that... I don't even think that is possible to do it there compared to what you can do in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Working as a VC, I mean, that's what everybody wants to do. That's what my friends want to do, want to be a VC. Is that, why did that happen? Because everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, Mark Zuckerberg, and now everybody wants to be Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen. What, what happened yeah. there? What's the narrative? I think that there's a lot of people who uh, they don't know what they want to do, so they just <laughs> yeah. kind of gravitate to whatever they think is the like the latest trend. Um, for me, uh, being an investor is um, I can't imagine a better job than it, just because I get to uh, spend every day with people who are working on really really hard problems and they're incredibly intelligent, and yeah. it's just. Uh, I learn so much and I enjoy learning. So I think a lot of people say like, oh, I would love to do that job because I can give money to people. I think I can make a lot of money, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff. It's very capitalistic driven. Uh, for me, there's days that absolutely suck, right? Like they <laughs> but in suck. everything you do, I mean, it sucks. <laughs> here, here, here is, I'll, I'll tell a, a true story. So two weeks ago, I literally went uh, and I started in New York and over uh, on Monday night, I left. And uh, I flew to Dallas, Texas. I spent Tuesday uh, morning and the early part of the afternoon. Then I flew to Austin, Texas. I spent uh, Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday during the day. Wednesday night, I flew. I had to get to Montreal for a meeting on Thursday, but there was no direct flights. So I flew from Austin, Texas to Charlotte, North Carolina for a layover. From Charlotte to New York, I drove home. I showered. I landed at 1130. I showered. I did not go to sleep. I went back to a different airport in New York. I got on a flight at 6 a.m. I flew to Montreal, but I had a layover in Philly. Went to Montreal, went to a meeting, just one meeting, went right back to the airport, flew to Philadelphia on Thursday, slept Thursday night in Philadelphia, went to a meeting Friday morning and took the train from Philadelphia back to New York. Wow. Right? Yeah. So that is from New York to Dallas to Austin, 
back to Charlotte, to uh, New York, to Philly, to Montreal, back to Philly, back to New York. So that's nine different stops in cities, right? In a five-day span and all those different flights. It wasn't fun for 99% of the time. But what was fun was the meetings, right? The things that I went to go do in each one of those places. And so it's very similar to what you see with um, a lot of people on social media, et cetera. You don't get to see the non-glamorous part of the job. You just see the glamorous part. And so it doesn't mean that, hey, this job sucks. Like this job is literally the best job in the world. I could not imagine doing anything better than this ever. But it doesn't come with outside effects. So I think people just got to get a a clear picture of the pros and the cons. And then they'll see, you know, do you really want to do this? Or do you just want the glamorous side of this job and you're going to hate the non-glamorous side? Stop being a soccer player. Sometimes you have to train before you go out and score. (laughs) uh, The best ones actually suffer the most, (laughs) right? Yeah, exactly. So a personal one, being a soldier? Yeah. yeah. Underrated, overrated? I loved it. Um, It it was... uh, very much at, my, at the time or in, in after? Oh, when I was doing it, I, I absolutely loved it. It was like the really? greatest thing in the oh, world. Oh, it was? Yeah, yeah. It, it, because I, People I, try and kill you? I, you I loving was, it? Uh, well, I was 17 years old when I went okay. to basic training, right? So yeah. it was like this okay. like summer camp. Like, oh, sweet. We get to shoot guns. We get to you know, go in helicopters and do all this crazy stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then uh, I went to uh, Iraq when I was 20. Um, and you're just, you're literally too dumb to know that okay, it's dangerous, exactly. right? Yeah. You're just like, yeah. you know, you, you think that you're Superman, you 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 know, nothing could happen to you, all this stuff. You look back, you're like, ah, that's pretty dangerous. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, when I went, it was, uh, it was a great experience okay. um, and uh, shaped a lot of uh, the way I think today. Can we do some, what you have learned from people? Because you work with some incredible people. We have Mark. I don't know if he's your boss, but yep. uh, something you learned from him, some, some key ideas, some, some key insights. Yep, so I got two partners. I got Jason Williams, Mark Yusko. Um, yeah, Ma- them both. Mark, something you learned from them both? Yeah, I, I think with, uh, I'll start with Mark. So Mark has um, really, really helped me learn a lot about finance, uh, traditional investing, risk management, um, the institutional world, all this stuff. He seems stable as a rock when you hear him yeah. talk. He's Is it Yeah. He's a professional. He doesn't lose it here in the in the room. He's a professional. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so he, um, you know, the, the one piece of advice that I always tell everyone that Mark told me, I one time asked him, I said, what separates the five best in the world, uh, the five best investors in the world from the next 25 peers that they have? So I don't care about the difference between the good ones and the bad ones. I want to know the absolute best from the great, right? What separates them? And he said one simple thing. They cut their losers faster than anyone else and they press the winners harder than anyone else. That one piece of advice will serve me you know, well for the rest of my life. So, so he's been incredibly uh, helpful, thoughtful. Yeah. Um, he'll never get enough credit for having the courage to do all this yeah. um, that he should. But, uh, but but just super, super thankful for him to uh, to be willing to but do that. But that advice stuff. doesn't – I mean, we're talking about investing here. But my like core concept or when thinking about this, like the, the, the advice you gave now – Apply that to dating. Everything. Get rid of the five Everything. worst dates you have and double down on the good one. Maybe. Of course. And uh, I used to joke with friends that said anything worth doing is worth overdoing, yeah, right? Exactly. Pretty similar concept, right? But, yeah. but uh, definitely true. And then with Jason, um, you know, J- Jason and I have known each other longer than I've known Mark. Um, and, and Jason and I, uh, when we first met, just absolutely hit it off immediately. Um, and it was because we had two very different life experiences. We came from different worlds. You know, he's got a wife and three kids and all stuff, oh, right? Okay, okay. And, um, you know, at the time I was single and just kind of a young guy and all stuff. But we had the same mentality. Okay. And it was, you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be um, the best, Right. 
but you can absolutely outwork people, yeah. right? And I In a healthy way, right? You don't want to drive yourself to the ground. It depends on how, what you want to do, yeah. right? Yeah. If you asked Elon Musk what his work-life balance is, he would say there is no fucking balance, <laughs> yeah. right? I work. Yeah. He's got no life, right? Yeah. But he's also Elon Musk, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So he's doing something that no one else can do because he's willing to do things yeah, that no one else is willing to do, yeah. right? So it really depends on what's your goal. Do you want to be Elon Musk? Yeah. You're not going to have a work-life balance. Yeah. That, that, that's bullshit, yeah. right? If you want to be successful, yeah. you can definitely have a work-life balance, yeah. right? It, it just depends on how far down the down the spectrum do you want to go in terms of that success, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's really, really important for people to understand. Um, and then on top of that, I also think that- Was that the key learn from Jason or did I look- So, so yeah. J- Jason, definitely, that was a piece of it. The, okay, okay, the other, okay. The other piece, um, so one was just like, hey, work, right? The, the other piece is- um, Jason has very much taught me, uh, patience and, and, uh, discipline when it comes to situations, right? So th- there's this idea that a lot of young people and some of it's just age, some of it's just the, the, uh, society we've grown up in, we want instant gratification. I have an idea. I want it to pay off immediately. Right. Whereas when you're a little bit older and, and you've kind of been, uh, around for a while, right. You understand, hey, great things take a really long time to build and you don't have to have it today, right? Just make sure you're doing the right things and you'll turn around in 5, 10, 15 years later, you'll be like, wow, we built something pretty freaking amazing here, right? Yeah. It just took a while to do it. And so the discipline and the patience paid off. Yeah, exactly. Personal one, Polina. What's Polina, ama- <laughs> she, she, she's amazing. She, Can you um, do another podcast just on that question? or uh, we, I, I could talk about her for forever. Um, so Polina is uh, my girlfriend. Um, we, we've been dating for a while. Uh, she grew up in uh, Bulgaria, uh, moved to the U.S. when she was 9 or 10 years old uh, to Atlanta, uh, lives with me here in, uh, in New York City now. And, um, you know, it, it's the classic example of uh, I found somebody who was um, smarter than me kinder than me, um, more, uh, ambitious than me and, uh, definitely not funnier than me. I'm still funnier than she is. Uh, but, but I think that, um, when you surround yourself with those types of people, right, she has a lot of the same qualities, um, that my partners, Jason and Mark have in that you feel like you have to level yourself up when you're around them. Right. So Jason and Mark do that in a business sense. Plina do, does that in almost every other aspect of my life, right? And so it, how's it's, the balance in the relationship? Is it like you both working all around the clock, or we we work a lot, but but we are very intentional about okay. spending time together, right? You know, last night, for example, we made sure we went to dinner, right? We're not playing with our phones. We went on for a walk after dinner, like all this stuff, and and it's just. It doesn't matter that it's, you know, oh, we didn't spend six hours together today, right? But the time we spent together was high quality time that we really both enjoyed. Quality right? over quantity, right? Yeah. And and also then there's certain things like on the weekends, we do everything together, yeah. right? And uh, I, I jokingly said to her the other day, uh, you know, you're my best friend. And she she got all excited about it. And she was like, you're my best friend too, right? <laughs> and, and it was also just kind of being stupid. but But at the same time, it's... Uh, when you are able to do that stuff, right? You have similar interests, et cetera. I think yeah. that it's really, really powerful um, because when I need to go somewhere for work, right? She comes with me, right? Like or the week you talked about, the, the the crazy week? Yeah, yeah. She does not come. So <laughs> so the one thing that she does not do is she hates traveling when I'm doing all this crazy stuff, right? Uh, but, you know, she uh, had to um, go to a conference, right? And so I went with her to that. And, and so we're able to kind of go to yeah. things with each other. Um, and, and it's just cool because, you know, you don't feel like, 
every single time I have to go home and like, oh, what'd you do today at work, right? But we, we get a lot of overlap. Um, and, and so it's it's just fun to be able to do it together. And awesome. uh, she's probably listening to this right now and uh, is uh, going to tell me that I'm embarrassing her, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I'm incredibly lucky. So uh, she deserves awesome. it. Awesome. I think we only some few dilemmas and then some final thoughts from your behalf. So I have some dilemmas here. You can just answer quickly. Get to know who created Bitcoin or having one Bitcoin go up to $1 million, which what do you choose? I don't want to ever know who created Bitcoin. I think there's incredible value in us not knowing who uh, who created it. So let's say Alien created it, maybe. We can say whoever you want created it, but I think there's <laughs> incredible value in us not knowing, and I don't want to but know. But someone created it, right? So at some Somebody point, did, whether it's an individual or a group, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. Get to invest early in Barstool Sports or uh, or build the first successful data center on Mars. What do you choose? I know you love Barstool Sports. So. I, I'm a huge believer in Barstool's... Uh, uh, business model. Um, and, uh, Dave, um, if you're listening, I wrote an article, this is probably almost two, it's probably more than two years ago now where I said that Barcelona is going to be a billion dollar media empire. Wow. And everyone was laughing. It was a $15 million company. And, uh, I tried to invest. They told me no. <laughs> um, and, uh, it looks like they're going to hit a billion dollars. And it was just very clear from early on that, uh, that they were going to be able to, uh, to pull this off. And so it's pretty cool. So uh, you, you'll invest in them and you let Elon build a data center on Mars. You're fine with that. You don't yeah, I mean, to... look, somebody's going to build a data center on Mars, but first we got to get there, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, there's there's kind of a sequence of events that okay. have to occur. Build a new company with Mark Zuckerberg or with the Winklevoss twins, which you choose. Which Who do you partner up with for the next venture? I think they're both different, right? You know, yeah. each one of them brings uh, different skills to the table. Um, different experiences, different views on the world. And so it really depends on what you're going to build. It's, it's like building any team, right? So no preference it's, for you on your behalf. No, I, look, I, I, I am, uh, I'm fans of both of them. Um, you know, I, I th- tend to think that uh, they're both, uh, you know, Cameron Tyler and then also Mark are uh, super successful. Um, they're both very thoughtful. They're, they're intelligent. Yeah. Um, and, and the part that I actually, uh, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to, to know all three of them Um are they They're, good people? All also? three are incredibly kind. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And now look, that doesn't mean that they're kind 100% of the time. That doesn't mean that they've done bad things. You know, all, all, whatever, But they don't have right? bad intention when they build stuff. They just want I, do, to build. I truly don't believe that um, in my experiences with them, in the things that we did uh, or, or in the conversations I've had with them, they've always been kind, at least to me. Right. Yeah. So, so it's like, you know, somewhere, right. That they're kind of people. Um, and, and I tend to think that about a lot of people in, in the world. Right. So maybe it's yeah. just me being, uh, overly optimistic, but I tend to think that yeah. most people are good people. Um, and you know, look, everyone's getting their information about these folks from the media, right. They're getting their information from some third party source. It's just hard to kind of judge someone without ever, you know, meeting them, talking to them, et cetera. Exactly. It's been an honor having you on the podcast. Do you have any final thoughts? I mean, you have a you write a very good newsletter each day. Maybe you can say it. it's off the chain, right? Off the chain. People yep. should know about that if they want to. People have can just go to uh, offthechain.substack.com and uh, they can find it there. But uh, I only got one final thought, man. It's the only thought I ever got. Long Bitcoin, short the bankers. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.